A quick warning, this podcast includes allegations of child sexual abuse, so listener discretion is advised. If any of the details are triggering, please talk to someone. If you're in New Zealand, you can call or text 1737 to speak with a trained professional. The worst time was standing up at the end of depositions where the judge read out his verdict or whatever he called it on whether we would have to go to trial or not. Mm. I remember standing there and my knees were just shaking and I was standing there crying. For 11 weeks from late 1992 through until early 93, Crown prosecutors had been making the case that Peter Ellis and four women who talked with him at the Christchurch Civic Crèche should stand trial for abusing children in their care. It was the preliminary court hearing, or depositions as they're known, for Peter Ellis, Gay Davidson, Jan Buckingham, Marie Keyes and Debbie Gillespie. I remember standing there with my face with tears streaming down his face, just concentrating on stopping my knees from shaking and thinking, I may feel like I'm going to die, but I'm not going to let anybody see that I feel that way. This is Debbie talking to author Lindley Hood. This interview took place in 1995, so just two years after Debbie stood in the dock accused of indecent assault, sexual violation and performing an indecent act in a public place. Next to her in court were Gay, Jan and Marie, each charged with indecent assault of three children and sexual violation of one. And across the room was 34-year-old Peter Ellis, who faced many more counts of indecencies and sexual abuse. 45 counts in total. Oh, it's awful, and then going out afterwards, and sometimes, you know, it's on sort of clips that you see on TV sometimes when we're standing on the steps outside the court, and it just gives me the most awful feeling to see that. I just... It's like watching somebody else in a different lifetime. It's sort of like I've forgotten. I choose not to remember Mm. how awful it was, really. Debbie was just shy of 30 when the case kicked off. And you look at something like that and I think, God, I can't believe. I can't even describe how I felt, actually. Mm. It was just, it's sort of like you function. It's like my brain turned off and you just function and you do what you're told by other people Mm. because everything's in such a mess and it's like everything's just whirling around you so fast you can't make sense of anything and it's just like somebody says do this and so you do it and do that and so you do it. In this episode we'll take you back to those depositions, to the case for and against Peter Ellis and his four colleagues. I'm Ali Jones and I'm Alexander Beza and this is Conviction. We're up to episode 8, 11 very long weeks. It's so easy to accuse anybody, no qualms whatsoever. Yeah. You know, that's our concern, and, and anybody on the street today could land up in exactly the same position. Gosh, have we all just been absolutely blindsided? Has Peter just been so clever and so cunning? I think childcare is about the most, one of the most dangerous professions you can be in now. Have we let the children down? Or have we just had a sacrificial lamb? By now it's late 1992 and we've had a year of uncertainty, confusion and grief for everyone involved. And I mean everyone. Obviously the complainant families, but also the accused and really anyone with a link to the civic crash. Good morning New Zealand, welcome to Morning Report for Tuesday November the 3rd. I'm Kim Hill. And I'm Neil Billy. The case is being heard at the Christchurch District Court. The first day in what promises to be a lengthy depositions hearing in Christchurch for five former civic crash workers began yesterday with the Crown outline of its case alleging graphic sex abuse. On that first morning of the depositions, a crowd gathered outside the court. The charges, which are strongly denied by the five, relate back to the closure of the civic creation in Christchurch earlier this year. Now, a deposition hearing is like a prelude to a trial. The prosecution and defence make their cases to a judge, who then decides if there's enough evidence to go to the High Court. It was the first time anyone involved would hear the evidence of sexual abuse at the childcare centre. The Crown alluded to what it's calling the Circle Incident, in which it says several young children were taken to a central city address and put in a cavity under a trap door. It's alleged they were later taken out and forced to stand naked within a circle of adults who encouraged them to kick each other's genitals. The Crown alleges Ellis also sexually violated a child with a stick at this point. 
They'd also hear how children were allegedly taken away from the crash and abused, or while Peter Ellis was babysitting them at his Hereford Street flat. The Crown Prosecutor claims that the evidence will be that a police search of the property located a trapdoor similar to that described by the children. The Crown intended to play 40 hours of recorded interviews from 20 children, hear from nearly 100 witnesses and present close to 150 exhibits to the court. The Crown also alluded to another game called Snakes in which Alice lay on a stomach and allegedly ended up indecently assaulting children. A number of other charges have resulted from the accounts of three children who the Crown says took it in turns to bath with Alice on one occasion and were induced to wash his genitals. The Crown alleges many other indecencies over a period from 1986 to 1991. In the interview you heard earlier with author Lindley Hood, Debbie discussed how her lawyer Gerald Nation stressed the importance of maintaining a respectable image. I had to buy a whole lot of new clothes to wear to court because I didn't have appropriate <laughs> Think about clothing. things like that, right. Yeah, like working in <clears throat> childcare, I mean, you can't go along in your tracksuit pants. Mm. And I had to buy this really conservative stuff that I hated. <laughs> so did, did you get advised on the sort of clothes you should wear by, uh, by Gerald? Or? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, we could sort of scrub up quite nicely anyway, but he yeah. did sort of say, you know, that just be careful about what you wear and mm. it was obviously you dressed nicely and yeah mm. but I just didn't have enough clothes and so mum just gave me the money to go and buy things I mean otherwise I just don't know what I would have done. Peter appeared in his usual more casual some might call eccentric look during the depositions. Journalist Martin van Bainen was there and specifically remembers his glasses. One of the arms had, had come off so he spent the whole depositions with this with this with these pair of glasses with a big plaster wrapped around the, the arm. And, uh, and I know one of his, one of his supporters um, said, well, you have to get another pair of glasses. So by the time he came to trial, it was, he, had, he had a pair of glasses. I remember the first time we saw Peter in court, and I must have, it must have been the first time I'd seen him in a long time. This is Debbie again. And my just natural instinct was I just went up to him and gave him a big hug and it wasn't until afterwards somebody said that probably wasn't very wise considering that you've been charged with having sex with him. I mean, I just didn't even make the connection, for God's sake. It's like, can't you just do normal things anymore? It's, yeah, yeah. Debbie says the daily court routine became a way of life, a new normal. Just concentrated on your daily life of getting up and going to court and coming home. And it's a bizarre time. It was really horrible. It was just a nightmare. It felt like it felt like I was watching a movie, where I'd wake up in the morning and think, "Oh my God, this is my life," and couldn't believe that this is what my life had turned into. I just couldn't believe it was me. It, it was mm-hmm. really strange that. Sort of like my brain couldn't accept the fact that this was really happening. Mm-hmm. And even though it was really awful and just so frightening, there was a very... I can look back now with sort of like... It's almost like with nostalgia on the sort of relationship that the four of us women formed together. Mm-hmm. And if we had to go anywhere or do anything, people would drive us. And it was wonderful how people just rallied around. Those parents that believed in us rallied around. A lot of parents and women that weren't charged, um, they all had a cooked meal for us. For the lunch break, the women and around 30-odd supporters often went back to Gay's house. And so we were very well supported. But we didn't, never brought Peter back here because we were told to be separated and even though we didn't believe in his guilt, that's what we did. It's another thing I felt dreadful about. And I know that to this day that chews gay up inside. Paula taught at the crash too and was friends with Peter and while she feared being arrested at one point, she was never accused of anything. It absolutely eats away at her and she... She has huge regrets that um, we didn't stand united, that we fell into that trap, that um, 
We made a big mistake there. We separated ourselves from Peter so that he went through the court system on his own and, and the four women went through the court system together and that should never have happened. That wasn't right. When recesses were like lunchtime things like that, I mean, I actually wandered up the road by myself and sat in the cafe by myself. Mum was working. It was on my own. The first week of the depositions consisted of the Crown and Defence giving their opening addresses and then the screening of the children's videotaped interviews. I had a lot of faith in the, in the police, like most people. I thought there probably was something to it. Martin van Beinen, a Christchurch-based journalist, sat through the depositions for his newspaper, The Press. I mean, obviously, we, we were all horrified by, by, by what was being alleged. But I, I initially didn't take a sceptical view. You know, I, I went along thinking, OK, well, the police must have a pretty strong case if it's going to go to the court. Although the public were excluded for the first week while the children's videos were being played, the press was allowed to stay. The videos were obviously key, and at that stage, I guess everyone had decided it wasn't a good idea to cross-examine the children, to protect them. And, you know, if the videotapes weren't enough to convince the court, then there wasn't much point in having the kids there as well, so... There were going to be hundreds of pieces of evidence and dozens of witnesses called, but critically, there was no physical evidence of abuse, nor adults who saw the abuse happening. The allegations made by the children were the real linchpin of this case. When I saw the videos, the interview videos, that's where I became very uncomfortable with the way the interviews were done and the sort of things the children were saying. And, um, and don't forget, by then I probably had a little bit of experience with some of the other cases that I'd seen thrown out for less, more sort of um, stronger interviews. So I looked at these interviews and yeah, I became very uncomfortable and, and started wondering why on earth the police had charged, particularly the woman. I thought that these charges were just way over the top and I didn't see how they could be, how they could have even been laid against the woman. The inconsistencies in the information that the children were giving and the contradictions and the, the bizarre material that was coming out, th that to me sh should have... Um, sent the alarm bells ringing. Seeing the tapes was something of a revelation for the women too. Jan, who died in 2000, told Lindley Hood she had doubts about Peter's innocence, but once she saw the children's videos, she realised that even the charges against him were just a lot of nonsense. Well, I've spoken to Gay about this. And there was a person who... I met outside court and she didn't believe it but her child was a complainant and I said look just go and demand to see the tapes and after that she took it, pulled her child out because she could see what was happening. We've already discussed how the children's evidence got pretty bizarre sometimes and different experts have different reasons for that from it was all confused imagination to they used concepts they understood to communicate something they're just too little to really comprehend. The Crown would also argue that the central detail given by the children in the videos was consistent and that's what should be relied upon. For years, the children's evidence and the way it was collected was found to be acceptable. But the main point here is that at depths, the judge only has to see that there's enough of a case for a trial to go ahead. Then six days into the proceedings, just as the public was allowed back in and the adult witnesses were being called, the hearing came to a sudden halt. Peter Ellis was still living at Hereford Street, making his way every morning to the High Court on Durham Street. But around 1am on November 8th, he was woken up by his barking dog and the sound of breaking glass. He rang the police. Four men then came into the kitchen and he was hit around the head with a piece of wood, thrown around and ended up on the floor. He recalled the incident during a 1993 interview with 2020 reporter Melanie Reid. I mean, I went flying all over the place. He then sort of started off sort of saying, he said, well, you know, we're going to get you. We've got, you know, we'll get you in the next 20 years. And then he turned around and said, but we know you're a narc, you'll find the police, so we might as well just kill you. I mean, I had um, uh, bruising on my back, my legs. I had grazing cuts to my hand. 
my arm, I cut across my nose, the whole of the back of my head. Um, yeah, I mean, it was not from pillar to post. Eventually, three of the men pleaded guilty. The fourth pleaded not guilty and was discharged when police couldn't provide enough evidence that he'd participated in the attack. After a one-day stand-on, the court was back in action. But this experience of being judged guilty before the case had even been heard was something experienced by all of the accused. Paula saw this firsthand from her seat in the public gallery. I had one really traumatic experience where a complainant parent sat behind us and um, they were sort of like whispering under their breath in the courtroom so that we could hear and they were talking about like shooting gay in the back of the head and um, that we're all as good as dead and you know just making really horrible threats quietly in the courtroom in the row behind us and um, I just found that so distressing just being in that environment where just people were that filled with hatred. I can remember one of the women was outside the courthouse and some a complainant parent's older teenage children drove past in a car and they were, you know, sort of going and shooting their fingers like a gun at their head as they drove past the court slowly. Debbie was that woman outside the courthouse. I remember one day coming out and somebody standing across the road and miming shooting us. There was a couple of places in Christchurch where there was really, really big graffiti. There was like a, you know, six foot paling fence with letters really huge saying the women are guilty. I was terrified. I mean, I remember feeling like, um, you know, I'm going to come home and find, I don't know, my cat nailed to the door or, you know, I just, <laughs> yeah, reading too much. <laughs> crappy fiction okay <laughs> but I just I because the whole situation was so unbelievable I it, anything could have happened I was really scared and and ultimately I was terrified of going to jail terrified once court resumed the adult witnesses were introduced first up were the specialist interviewers Questions about the reliability of the children's evidence and concerns about parental contamination were raised. Society testified that, in her opinion, the disclosures did not appear to have been learned and that the children's emotional response was consistent with that of sexually abused children. She told the court confusion about events was consistent with children who'd been sexually abused and progressive disclosures were also to be expected as children often experimented with their disclosures, minimising events at first to test how their parents might respond. One of the other interviewers, Catherine Crawford, testified that one child claimed he was joking after making some of the more fanciful claims, but she felt that recanting was not unusual for a child who had been abused and he had consistently described being smacked and hurt. The woman whose nephew was one of the children who accused Peter Ellis of abuse also sat through some of the depositions and recalls some of the testimony. There was no rules then about having to sign your children in and out and it came up in depositions it was admitted to. Um, so there of course is opportunity when there was no, no sign out. Basically the Ellis case um, helped the regulations change around that all that safety stuff about where kids could and couldn't be when their parents didn't know. The first parent witness took the stand at the end of November, four weeks into proceedings. For the next month, a stream of worried parents gave evidence, noting physical complaints like sore anuses and redness around genital areas. Many outlined huge behavioural changes in their children and recounted the abuse as their children had described it to them. How Peter Ellis made one girl touch his diddle how one boy was put in a cage while 20 men wearing cowboy hats had skipped around him in a circle. How Peter had urinated and pooed on children at the crash. Some parents admitted under cross-examination that some of the allegations were improbable and some admitted they had used leading questions, but they were all adamant that what their children were saying was true. Debbie Gillespie's mother sat through the entire depositions hearing. Some of them were perfectly all right in the witness box and some of them were just, oh, I remember one woman, one mother, 
she's a, an entertainer, she's a singer. And she sat up there and she just sort of flaunted round to everybody, you know, and smiled, put her feet up on the rail in the witness box and the judge told her to put it down. And just sort of like she was at a concert, you know. But the other, other mothers, whew, <laughs> in particular, Bart's mother. Bart is one of the pseudonyms we're using because the children all have name suppression. She sat behind us, <laughs> deliberately, you could tell, and talked very loudly. She's a very vulgar woman. And it was like a, it was sort of like it was entertainment going to court. Had they had Ellis Effing Gillespie yet? <laughs> Bart's mother actually describes this time in court in her book, A Mother's Story. She doesn't mention making vulgar comments while listening to others giving evidence. What she does describe, though, are her two days on the stand, and she says they were gruelling. We've had an actor voice her words. I sat on a chair in the box, feeling very uncomfortable. I'm short, and the chair was not high enough for me. Everyone in the court was staring at me, waiting for my replies. I felt as though I was on trial myself, and over there in full view were the five accused looking at me with contempt, I thought. I guess I may have looked back at them the same way. The rest of the courtroom seemed to be packed with supporters of the accused. They too looked at me contemptuously. They would sometimes all snigger together over something I said, or about what I reported my son having told me. The accused themselves would put their hands over their mouths and laugh. I would look at them and say to myself, these are the ones who are supposed to have a commitment to caring for children. Instead, it seemed to me they were laughing at evidence of physical, psychological and sexual abuse on our children. Debbie remembers the giggling. She knew it was wrong, but says it had nothing to do with what was happening in court. Jean and I were so naughty. We used to play little games, like just written, not talking games, and just write things down. And, and I remember once having to bite my hand to inflict pain to stop myself laughing. Because, it, I mean, it was also a really bad impression because it looked like we didn't care. But she says it wasn't that she didn't care, it was just her way of getting through the days and days in court. Sometimes it was distressing, and other times it was just mind-numbingly boring. There were some surprises in court, though, such as Ms Magnolia taking the stand. So neither of the first two children to make allegations of abuse were complainants in the depositions. Mandy, who kick-started the investigations in 1991, had been withdrawn by her mother after Colin Eade made a pass at her. And Geoffrey, who made that first comment, I don't like Peter's black penis, had refused to repeat his accusation to police, though an extended family member has said he was just too frightened to do the interview. But Geoffrey's mother, Miss Magnolia, was still asked to take the stand. Yeah, we explained a little of her background in episode two, her mental health, sexual abuse history and role as a counsellor. It was all to be put under the microscope at the depositions as she was cross-examined by Rob Harrison. She was serene in her belief. You know, she was calm, describing the, what I only describe as a horror for any parent, if what she was saying was true. So I think she had convinced herself in her own mind that um, Peter Ellis was this horrendous uh, pedophile that had been preying on these children for months and months and months and years possibly and um, and her brave boy had um, spoken up and therefore saved countless children. That was the, she was the knight in shining armour, you know, the, the um, Joan of Arc. Another surprise witness was one of Peter Ellis's former partners. This woman met Peter in 1986 at the creche when one of her children was going there. They hit it off and in mid-1987, Peter moved in with her. He babysat her children and she claimed that Alice shared a bed with them overnight. Now I had a few texts back and forth, but she and her family weren't comfortable being part of this podcast. She did speak to Lindley Hood though and explained how she came to give evidence against Peter. 
She starts by explaining how her sister told her about some of the allegations, and I quote, She told me that Peter had put sandwiches up little girls' vaginas and stuff. The whole thing sounded absolutely horrible. In the beginning, I wasn't going to go against Peter. I did in the end because the more I sort of began to realise what had happened and the more I realised that my loyalties lay with the children and not with him. And because of the way I was talking to Colin Ede about Peter and talking to Peter about what Colin Ede and the police were doing, I was right in the middle. I was getting really screwed up in the head, basically. A few years after the case, in 1995, she appeared on the TVNZ assignment programme describing how she came to view Peter Ellis. I always believed that his attachment to some of the children was unnatural and um, with the girls it was like they were his girlfriends, his partners almost, his lovers. You know, and he was talking to them about as if they were his um, possessions, would be like more the word, possessions, toys. I used to call him a habitual liar because he lied about just about everything in his life. Such as? Uh, well, he said that he was 10 years older than what he was, so everyone thought, oh, gee, gee, you're looking young for your age, Peter, and that sort of thing, so he felt really good. And um, he told them that he'd been married and had two children. And during the depths, she gave evidence that she'd once seen Peter Ellis coming out of the adults' toilets at the crash with a little girl. She retold the story to assignment journalist Rod Warren. When the door opened, uh, Peter was there and a little girl was standing in front of him just by the door archway and I just said to Peter, what's she doing in there? And she says, oh, oh the other toilets were full and so I had to use this one. And I looked and the toilets went full when I was there and they weren't there when I first came in so um, I, don't, I can only suspect what, it, what was happening in the toilets. Is it your belief that he sexually abused some children at the civic crash? Yes, it is. I feel that Peter is so clever that he was able to um, manipulate the situation at the civic so that uh, the woman weren't aware of what was happening. Is he a paedophile? Yes, he is. Absolutely. By now, the case had reached the six-week mark, but there were many more witnesses to hear from. Like the doctors who examined the children. Who all testified that while the children showed no evidence of trauma, they didn't exclude the possibility of abuse. And some of the other teachers of the crash. Who talked about the layout of the centre and Peter Ellis in general. After a two-week break for Christmas and New Year, the depositions resumed on January 19th, 1993. The hearing is now in week eight. There was more video testimony. Sue Sidey returned to answer more questions about the interviews, and then the police began to give their evidence. They described their interviews with the defendants. They laid out timelines of when Peter Ellis had taken children away from the crash. And they described how they'd scoured various locations for tunnels and trapdoors, cages and child porn, and any evidence associated with ritual abuse. Debbie listened in horror. The police presented some utterly ridiculous things that were supposed to be evidence. My cousin was a detective and he was involved, not closely, but on a sort of slightly removed scale. I remember him presenting a, well it wasn't a spreadsheet, it was a good old whiteboard and a pen <laughs> of, I think it was about the different shifts and who worked the different shifts. It's never really been discussed with my family, but I I hated him for quite some time, absolutely hated him, because my aunt and uncle invited my brother for a meal at their place, and I think the intention was let's be supportive to the family of this dreadful child molester, you know, because how terrible for them. And my uncle said to my brother, you never do know what your family gets up to. And I just, you know, and I think my parents still feel angry about that. For nine long weeks, the Crown laid out its case against Peter Ellis and the four women. To Peter, parts of it just seemed farcical. On a Friday, and this, is, this happened quite often, but on this particular Friday, everyone was so eager to get out of the place and go off to half-price half drinks from five to six 
that there was just the five of us sitting there with all the evidence and I just said to whoever it was, I said, oh, I said, I've got a lighter. I said, we said, that'll sort that all out. Uh, Debbie went up, sort of, was up in the judge's box and I was in the witness stand and we were being stupid when uh, Rob Harrison turned up. <laughs> he said, no wonder you lot all got into trouble. I said, well, so these are all these hard and horrible criminals. As I said, I said, and fears all the evidence not even being packed away and everyone's off down the road having a piss up. I mean, that's how serious it is. After 11 long weeks, on February 9th, 1993, the lawyers were ready to give their closing addresses. The women's lawyer, Gerald Nation, argued that there was no credible evidence to send his clients to trial. Peter's lawyer, Rob Harrison, argued that the claims by the children couldn't be relied upon. But Crown Prosecutor Brent Stanaway argued that the case should be decided by a jury that got to see the children's evidence for itself. Watching all this from the sidelines was journalist Martin van Bainen. At the end, from memory, um, Brent Stanaway more or less agreed that the, the Crown's position was that the charges against the woman shouldn't go ahead. But it was the judge's decision, and he was a fairly pedestrian-type judge, a very pro police judge and he was he was old so no one expected him to go out on a limb and, and go against the, the crown or the police but I had the impression that he he didn't think the police had a case against the woman anyway finally on Thursday February the 11th judge Anderson returned to the court Marie Hosking was there reporting for RNZ it was a very, very tense scene before the judge actually emerged. Uh, the court was very full, the whole gallery was full, there were people lining the walls, the media bench you could have filled three times over, there was a barrage of cameras, um, television cameras and, and press photographers standing at the doorway waiting. Then he announced his decision. There were tearful scenes in the Christchurch District Court this afternoon after the announcement that five former childcare workers will stand trial in the High Court on sexual abuse charges. Four charges were dismissed for want of evidence, but the remaining 56 charges will go to trial. When the decision was announced, there was just a murmur, really, that went through. And then as it sunk in, um, there were some, some people started to cry in the front rows. There were people who were obviously related to the defendants and uh, in fact looked like a couple of children of the defendants. Um, once the judge left, then, then the emotion really, really had a high point. Someone called out, you'll go down, and uh, all the defendants w were crying. Um, the parents of the defendants were crying. It was a fairly emotional scene, and the police, in fact, asked all those who weren't uh, directly involved to leave. It was terrible for all of them. Watching in court was Paula. Because these women were my friends, and I really knew them. I just, I know them inside and out, I still do. I just know that they're good, good people. Debbie was dumbstruck. I remember sitting on a table just being in shock, and Peter coming and being really nice to me and being really comforting and trying to sort of joke and, yeah, just so unbelievable really, that it could go that far. But it had gone that far. Peter Ellis, Gay, Jan, Marie and Debbie were going to have to defend themselves in front of a jury of their peers. Judge Anderson explained the reasons for his decision. Here's Marie Hosking from RNZ again. He said that because this case had such public interest, he felt um, compelled to give some kind of explanation. What were the reasons that Judge Anderson gave for sending all five to court? He quoted a number of, uh, of, of cases, of legal cases, but the effect of what he was saying really was that this was a case that should really be put to the test of a jury, that this, that this should be tested in the High Court. I think one of the most uh, interesting comments to me that he made was that it wasn't whether um, he, as a judge, believed the evidence that was put before him in this very long depositions hearing, but whether the evidence was in fact capable of being believed by a jury. That was the key point. Three charges against Peter Ellis and one against Debbie Gillespie had been dismissed due to insufficient evidence. Gay Jan and Marie, though, still faced four counts each. Debbie was down to two, 
and Peter now faced 42 charges against 20 children. In her book, Ms. Dogwood writes that You could see relief on parents' faces. You could hear people crying. And someone was saying under their breath, Yes! Yes! Again, all stood as the judge left the court, and then a real buzz of conversation broke out. But before I could take that in, somewhat to my surprise, the police were ushering us out of the court to the back entrance. We were escorted through the crowd that had assembled there, most of them supporters of the accused, judging by the angry, hateful looks I saw when I glanced up at them. There was no trouble, but I was thankful for the police presence. But I remained speechless until, assembled with the other parents in a room at the back of the court, I suddenly found my voice. Very loudly, I said, Yes, we've done it! Justice has paid! The accused woman left the High Court through the door normally reserved for staff. Many people from the media have approached the women I represent. On the steps outside the exit, their lawyer Gerald Nation stood in front of them and faced the waiting news crews. Given the way our legal system operates, their committal for trial was not unexpected. Naturally, they are, however, disappointed at the result and the fact that their ordeal continues. Every step will now be taken on their behalf to ensure that ultimately justice is done. That's all they have to say at this stage, and I'd ask that you now let them move to their vehicle. When making his ruling, Judge Anderson was careful to remind everyone that the accused was still to be presumed innocent. Martin van Banen told me... You could almost tell from the way he made his decision was that he, he didn't express his doubts, but the tone was, well, look, the process is that um, if there's a prima facie case, it has to go to trial, and it's not my duty to, to decide guilt or innocence, but I think there's enough evidence, so I'm sending it through. I think a braver judge would have said at that stage, look, the evidence against the woman is so sketchy that I don't think it should go ahead. For the women's families and supporters such as Paula, it was an unbelievable blow. I was looking after Marie's two girls, Marie Keys, just holding them. It's terrible. <laughs> holding these wee girls and cuddling them, knowing that their mother was going to a high court trial for abuse, or satanic abuse. And they just, oh, the wee kids, they just crumpled and you're trying to be strong and hold them and that was terrible. Maria remembers that as well. I can remember my eldest daughter running out of the court um, and it was just getting worse. We didn't know quite what was going to happen, but we knew that it was going to be bad. I think for me, the huge impact of knowing that they were going to the High Court trial was that um, if it hadn't been thrown out at depositions, then there was a really good chance that, you know, the momentum was going to continue through a High Court trial. The trial was set down for April the 26th. Ten weeks then to prepare. The formal indictments needed to be laid and any pretrial applications would be considered and heard. It was during all this legal wrangling that the charges against Debbie were reduced to just one. And then on the 5th of March, 1993, Deborah Gillespie was today discharged on account of indecently assaulting a girl under 12 because the prosecution said the girl would not be available to give evidence at a trial. The mother had withdrawn her child from the court proceedings. TV news teams caught up with Debbie, Gay and their lawyer Gerald Nation as soon as they stepped out of the court. Debbie speaks first. Well, I'm obviously very, very relieved. Um, I have a lot of mixed feelings and I'm extremely conscious of the ordeal that the other innocent women had yet to go through. So 
Yeah, I've just got a lot of mixed feelings at the moment. Okay, if you can just remember what it was like today when you walked out of the court behind Debbie, how did you feel then? A little bit lost, like I thought it could have been all of us, it should have been all of us. I would have thought Debbie would have been happy her charges were dropped, but when I spoke to her, I discovered it was much more complex than that. And I still feel really, really angry about that because I didn't even get a chance to defend myself. I didn't have a chance to prove that it was utter rubbish. I mean, I'm very glad I didn't have to go through a trial, but in some ways it's like, that's not fair. You can't just turn around. You can't do such serious damage to somebody's life and then just decide it's too hard. That's really wrong. It left me feeling like I was just hanging. It's like, well, what do I do now? What do I do with my life? You know, I'm not going to work with kids. What do I do? I'm trained to be a teacher. I don't have any other training. It was... The dropping of the charges against Debbie gave the other defendants a glimmer of hope. By this stage, they had also had their charges revised too. Gay, Marie and Jan were now each looking at one charge of being parties to an indecent act. Peter himself was down from 42 charges to 28. The defence did try to have all the children's interviews thrown out. One of their pre-trial submissions was that, and I quote, the procedures followed in this case by the police, the parents and the interviewers were so wrong and oppressive that the resulting videotaped interviews and the children's oral evidence should be excluded on the grounds of unfairness, end quote. But Justice Williamson, who presided over the High Court trial in all the pre-trial applications, rejected that submission but the Crown was prepared to bargain. I was offered that if I plead guilty to eight of the charges, 20 of them would be dropped. This is Peter Ellis talking to TV3 journalist Melanie Reid in 1993. I think they're even a less charge that, perhaps I, I might do uh, three years instead of 15 or, you know, whatever. Well, I think that stinks too, quite frankly, because I said, if I'd done it, which I haven't, then 28 charges should stand. You don't go around sort of offering says, so we'll accept that and we'll, we'll, we'll drop those because the police believe all of them happened. That's not on, that's not fair. Peter rejected the offer, maintaining his innocence. Good evening. After months of torment and anguish, three Christchurch crash workers are tonight celebrating the end of their court ordeal. This came out of the blue just two weeks before the trial was to begin. The women from Christchurch's civic crash have been acquitted of child abuse charges. Gerald Nation had applied to have the women discharged. In an emotionally charged court this afternoon, they were told the charges against them were dropped. Justice Williamson found the evidence against the women was, and I quote, of insufficient weight to justify their trial. Unquote. And he felt that there was a risk they'd be convicted for the wrong reasons and that the delays in the trial might result in hardship for the complainant child. So the request was granted. I can't believe it. It's just really, really great. I'm still shaking. It's just wonderful. We can start our lives again. And our power's been given back to us yes. now. We can start fighting. We're all exhausted, but we've done it. It was the result that we've always aimed for, an acquittal. That's lawyer Gerald Nation in a One News report. But later in 1995, when he appeared on TVNZ's assignment programme, he admitted he felt a real disquiet about the judge's decision. Not that they'd been acquitted, but why? In New Zealand, people do not normally have to stand trial unless there is evidence on which a jury could properly convict them. If there's not that sort of evidence, if there's not enough of that evidence, then people don't have to stand trial. But His Honour did say in this case that that alone would not have been sufficient. Uh, it was only the fact that there, would have, there was the prejudice through the association with Alice and the fact there was going to be delay that in this case caused him to discharge them. And I must admit I had difficulty accepting that reasoning. Rose, you'll remember she's the aunt of one of the alleged victims, is also a lawyer and even today she has reservations about the decision, but from quite another viewpoint. The judicial process by which they avoided trial was unusual and speaks to how difficult it is to get convictions. It was considered that they were unable to get a fair trial, so there wouldn't be one. 
and it could could well have been true, but it's still not. It's not like going to trial and being found not guilty. Rob Harrison had also applied to have the charges against Peter Ellis dismissed. But in an oral judgment, Justice Williamson said while the evidence against the women was insufficient, that did not mean he disbelieved the child who made the allegations. So Harrison's request was denied. For the complainant families, the women's acquittal was truly devastating. One crash grandparent spoke to TV Current Affairs programme, Holmes. I just sort of felt an immense sadness because children, to me, are the most powerless group in our society. What was it like for people seeing the women crash workers get off last night? Well, I talked to two of the parents who were within my close family and um, they were absolutely shattered. You know, there's the whole feeling of frustration and powerlessness, really. The very next night, Detective Inspector Brian Pierce was also on Holmes in a live studio interview. Pierce had become the face of the creation investigation. You said to a producer of ours this afternoon, words to this effect, for too long we've tolerated pornography. You said this? Yes, I did. Did that... Our investigators... Now, hang on. Did, did, did that view affect the way you approached these women? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Well, how can you assure us that it wasn't? The charges against them were eventually thrown out. They claim that you've ruined their lives because of it. The point I was making this afternoon when I was speaking off camera to your interviewers was that we've come into uh, contact really with, with a drug, which is the most insidious drug I think that we have socially at this current time. Which is? The drug is pornography. It's addictive and it's evil in every sense of the word. And I was saying that for too long, I believe, it's a personal belief that our society have mocked the Patricia Bartlett's of, and the Graham Lees and the John Banks's. And really what I'm saying is that I actually believe in a God uh, who will not be mocked. And currently I believe that this country is actually now starting to reap the harvest of liberalism and of compromise and of double standards. That's the point I was making this afternoon. Are these the kinds of attitudes that would allow you to be objective approaching a case like the Christchurch Christ case? Our investigators, Paul, are trained to be highly objective. I put together a, an inquiry team uh, who were balanced in terms of their objectivity, in terms of their background of child abuse investigation, in terms of in their background of mm. uh, investigative experience. OK. Are, are you sorry? no question that they lacked ob objectivity. All right. After this interview, Pierce was criticised for his moral stance and how that might have influenced the case. But a police source told RNZ news reporter Amanda Kropp the stance was justified as more than 2,000 pornography tapes had been seized during the investigation. The tapes were seized from five addresses. Some of them depicted bizarre sexual acts similar to those described by children giving evidence in the sexual abuse trial of former childcare worker Peter Ellis. But none of the tapes belonged to any of the accused in the crash case. In Christchurch, Amanda Kropp. That interview with Paul Holmes concluded with Pierce doubling down on how the police handled the case. All right, are you sorry that the women were arrested? No, I'm not sorry that the women were arrested. They say that you have ruined their lives. Do you accept that? I accept that this inquiry has had a significant impact uh, on the women's lives and their professional careers. But the police, when we're assessing charges, really can't take into account status or profession or reputation. Six months earlier, the women had been arrested. They'd sat through police interviews, public scorn, and an 11-week court hearing. And at last, in April 1993, the case for them was over. Well, kind of. They did still have a battle for compensation for their court costs and for losing their jobs. At the end of that year, Justice Williamson ruled that everyone involved in prosecuting the case had acted in good faith, and he refused to award them costs. So they got nothing there. In 1995, the Employment Court ordered the Christchurch City Council pay more than a million dollars in compensation to a group of 13 crèche staff who'd lost their jobs when the crèche closed. The council appealed, and by 1996, they only had to pay the staff about $170,000, plus the women's court costs for defending themselves against the child abuse charges. 
Okay, back to 1993. As the women were celebrating, Peter Ellis was still smack in the middle of the maelstrom. The trial, which he would now face alone, was just a few weeks away, set down for April 26th. Mary, a crash parent whose children were not complainants, recalls how Peter coped with the charges against his colleagues being dropped. I thought he functioned exceptionally well, you know? Like, he was isolated from all the women. Peter was an incredibly resilient person, and I suppose I, I had a bit of admiration for that. Um, yeah, he was amazing. And I can remember um, on the day when the women were, um, you know, said that, you know, they didn't have anything to be accountable for, and um, they were all allowed to walk away. And I can remember sitting with Winston Whelans, actually, and I said, Winston, so it's wonderful the women have got off, it's fabulous, but where does that leave Peter? And what does that mean? You know, like, if the woman got off, why hasn't Peter got off? Next time on Conviction, we enter the High Court and follow the trial of Peter Ellis. So the vagaries of it, of a, of a jury, I've got to take on board, but deep in my heart, I know the answer. I'm not guilty. Absolutely, Peter was just Satan personified and definitely committed these crimes. And, you know, the abuse was real and it was horrific. And the sooner we get through this trial so that we can find him guilty, the better. Oh, I, Christ, I'd have hated to be in his shoes. Poor bastard was terrified. He did pretty well, but um, he was not a man designed for um, the public frontage. Guilty or not guilty, the verdict nobody yet knows. Thanks for listening to Conviction, the Christchurch Civic Crash Case, hosted by Ellie Jones and Alexander Beezer. Conviction was made by Monsoon Pictures International, with support from RNZ and New Zealand On Air. The series was written and produced with help from Aliki Siantolis, Liz Garten and Tim Watkin. Blair Stagpole was the audio engineer. The voice actor in this episode is Jane Robertson. Thanks go out to RNZ's commissioning team, Kay Elmers and Tim Burnell, for giving this project the green light, and to Hingyi Kong for designing the webpage. And to Nataonga Sound and Vision for help with some of the archival audio, as well as MediaWorks Discovery, Getty Images, TVNZ, and the Livingston Family Trust. The key image for the series is courtesy of North and South. Conviction can be found on the podcast page of the RNZ website. It's also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and iHeartRadio. Follow the series so you don't miss an episode.